This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. Ed Simon to tell us about a really interesting, teeny tiny, physically little book, but packed with a lot of ideas, part of Bloomsbury's Object Lesson series. The book is Relic. Uh, It's just come out in early 2024 and does a very interesting exploration and examination of what we mean by relics, what we mean, what people have meant, um, how this has changed over time, how this has maybe not changed over time. So, Ed, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast to talk to us about relics. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's always a delight to be in the New Books Network, and uh, I'm excited to talk about some of these ideas from, from the book. Well, we're very pleased to have you back on the network. Um, But for anyone who maybe hasn't heard you here before, could you start off introducing yourself a little bit and explaining why you decided to write this book? Sure. So I am, I guess, a a writer, editor, college instructor. I'm based in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I've written a number of books, uh, over over a dozen right now. Uh, And my beat tends to be kind of um, religion and literature, uh, with maybe a particular interest in the more sundry qualities of faith. So that's why, you know, things like demons and the occult, and and that's why relics has a, a particular interest uh, for me. Um, reason that I, I decided to write this particular title was I've always had on my publishing bucket list uh, the Object Lesson series. So uh, if your listeners aren't familiar with this, it's an incredible series uh, that is published by Bloomsbury Academic. And they're basically these short little um, para-academic introductions to the cultural and philosophical history of particular things, of objects. So each one is almost like a biography of an object. Uh, And they have things like, you know, driver's license and golf ball and magazine. uh, And they're all titled over whatever their particular subject happens to be. There is not a lot in the way of specifically um, religious objects that are considered. There's an excellent book on on the hijab, um, but there's not really a whole lot else in the, in the catalog. So I thought that maybe uh, relic would be something that they would be interested in, and, and they thankfully turned out to to in fact be interested in that as a subject. So I wanted to write about um, relics as kind of very much material objects, things that are estimably physical that take up, you know, uh, length and width and depth within time and space, but that also have this other element that is either within them or imposed on them uh, of of the sacred. So these kind of things that exist at the nexus of matter and spirit. Uh, And I really wanted to talk about the ways in which this idea of relics permeates the culture beyond that which we think of as traditionally religious. Those are some very um, interesting things to get into and, of course, give us a lot to talk about. So thank you for that introduction. And 
yeah, having interviewed, uh, been lucky enough to interview a number of Object Lessons authors, it is a very cool series. So I'm not surprised it was on your bucket list. It's a beautiful series, beautifully designed. Um, mm. There are these great little kind of like stocking stuffer size volumes. <laughs> um, they're the sort of thing you could like probably put in your in your pocket and pull it on the subway or something. Mm-hmm. So they're they're really gorgeous and they're uh, they're designed, I think, for people. Who aren't necessarily academics, though. Obviously, I hope that academics, you know, benefit from the the title. But really, it's for uh, an interested and educated audience mm-hmm. uh, in general that I think uh, can benefit from them. So, if we think about a potential reader um, sitting on the subway, pulling it out of their pocket, one of the first things that they'll encounter opening your particular contribution to the series is the term relic logic. What do you mean by this? Yeah, so relic logic is one of these, like, you know, one of the, I think, sublime joys of doing this kind of writing at the intersection of the popular and the more academic uh, within the humanities is you get this kind of carte blanche to develop your own neologisms, right? Your own kind of like critical terminology. Uh, And so relic logic, I think, is my kind of novel contribution from this book. Sometimes I wish I came up with like a little bit of a a better or more arresting phrase than that. But I think it conveys what I wanted to convey, hopefully. What I mean by relic logic is the kind of particular way of thinking about an object that is sacred or important or notable that goes beyond kind of traditional rationality, right? That kind of exceeds the limitations of everyday prosaic logic. So relic logic is something where you look at an object by that by definition is mundane, is, um, is, is not particularly interesting necessarily in and of itself, but you endow it with a, a type of sacred significance beyond the parameters of its like everyday reality. So as an example, you know, a, a saint's bone from the Middle Ages or something. I mean, a, a finger bone is a finger bone is a finger bone. In and of itself, it's not necessarily... Uh, super interesting. But if it is endowed with this type of relic logic, it becomes important because of who it's associated with or the stories that accrue around it or or whatever. I argue in the book that relic logic isn't just something that we apply to things that are obviously uh, religious relics, but that we apply to all sorts of secular things as well. So if you go to a, a sports hall of fame, if you go to the um, you know, football hall of fame, American football hall of fame in, in Canton, Ohio. And you look at like uh, a football that was in, uh, you know, uh, uh, a particular play or whatever. It's not any more important in a literal sense, right. In terms of the materials than just a regular football, you'd buy at like a Dick's sporting goods store. It's made out of the same pig leather. It's sewn in the same way. It has the same sort of stuffing. It's literally in a in a chemical and physical sense, uh, not particularly important. But relic logic tells us, or relic logic is the attribute or the property that gives it a significance culturally uh, beyond the the sort of basic particulars of its actual uh, uh, composition. And so in the book, I argue, you know, this is something that we clearly see um, in religious relics, but we see it in sports memorabilia and things that are associated with celebrities. And it in part defines what we think of as authenticity in artwork, for example, uh, or how we memorialize certain things. So it's really what I claim is an intrinsic and uh, as in so much as I can use the word universal, 
kind of universal aspect of how we decide certain prosaic objects are more notable or more important than other things which they might be identical towards. No, I think that's very helpful to explain and does sort of give us a broad foundation to discuss this without assuming that everything we're talking about is just sort of, as you said, a medieval saint's bone, right? It, it yeah, opens exactly. up a relic beyond that. Exactly. And, I think any visitor to, you know, uh, the, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or something um, can't look down upon uh, a medieval peasant who's going to like the Shrine of <laughs> Thomas a Becket or something. Um, because the the need to see these physical objects associated with whether they're saints or cultural heroes or whatever, um, I think that there's a commonality to the emotion behind that experience. Hmm. All right. So we've laid that piece of groundwork. And I think some of the words you used are really key, right? Emotion is a key part of this. Perception yes. is a key part of this. Connotation mm-hmm. is a key part of this. But you also talked in your first answer about the importance of the physicality of relics. So can we bring these that into what you've just told us about the kind of less tangible aspects of relic logic? What is significant to you about the physicality of these items? Absolutely. I, I think that physicality is really what separates um, relics as an object of religious devotion from things that are maybe a little bit more abstract or intangible. So like relics are different from... Um, you know, scripture, for example, though, obviously, like a physical book can very much be a relic, but, you know, the kind of the content of it or something, or it's different from prayer, though prayer is obviously uh, a thing that is enacted physically as well, right? So the physicality, the fact that you can, you can touch, you can feel, um, you can move a relic is really, really important to the sacredness of the object. So in a religious context, I think, what relics do um, is in, in the kind of more ethereal way, they remind us that faith is as physical as it is spiritual, that these aren't antonyms from one another, but that spirit and matter kind of exist together in the religious imagination. So they're not opposites, they're not contrary. You can't really understand one without understanding the other. In a medieval Catholic sense, relics were oftentimes also um, a kind of memento mori, which is to say that they were a reminder of our mortality. So if you're looking at a saint skull, uh, it's a way of reminding one that you will die one day as well, right? Um, so that's something that's very, I think, explicitly connected with um, religious relics within their history. But then in a more secular context, uh, we're still fascinated by the physicality of these particular objects, right? So if you're looking at um, you know, a dress that Marilyn Monroe wore in the Smithsonian or something. And that's you know, just an example off the top of my head. Uh, there's something that is important, I think, about the idea that this is the real dress that this particular person wore, that it's a connection to them as an embodied person, as a, as a person who's not just an idea, but an actual physical human being as well. Or if you're looking at, um, you know, uh, Emily Dickinson's poems scribbled on the back of a, an envelope or something, right? It's a way of grounding ourselves in the specificity and the reality of the physical world. It's a reminder that we are all human beings, that we are all made out of flesh and blood, that we're all made out of atoms, right? So that's a, it's a way of kind of pulling heaven down to earth, as it were, uh, of, mm-hmm. of kind of reminding ourselves of the, 
you know, for lack of a better term, miraculousness of the actual physical world as well. Hmm. So thinking about that, I want to kind of poke at it a bit further by asking you about a subset of relics mm. that we've both already referred to and in fact uh, is the inspiration for the image on the cover of the book. But let's talk about it more directly. Um, relics made from human bodies. What is the, quote, radical invitation, as you say in the book, that these relics have? Yeah, and I think that sort of um, relics that are made out of uh, you know human corpses, basically. It's, it's I think I think the word relic itself maybe has two broad connotations in the wider public. One is relic is sometimes used uh, to mean something that's morbid or something that is old or archaic, something that's dead, basically. Uh, and then the other one, you know, if you call someone a relic or whatever, um, it's like calling them a dinosaur, that sort of thing. Uh, and then the uh, other connotation, I think, is this idea of of things that are also dead, but in a more literal sense, right? So things that are actually fragments uh, of a body, so bits of bone or flesh or whatever. Uh, and oftentimes that discussion of relics um, comes across, I think, as grotesque or ghoulish or gothic. It's this very kind of morbid understanding of relics. It seems to us today in kind of a post-Reformation world, something about it is oftentimes slurred, I think, as uh, superstitious uh, or as simple-minded uh, or whatever. And there's certainly many, many medieval stories of, you know, that, that do come across as ghoulish, like the things uh, about a saint who's maybe in the process of dying and it's it's helped along by people who then kind of take their own relic home off of the off of the dying saint. Uh, and whatever the truth of those particular stories, right, I think it does underscore the way in which we think of this as an archaic medieval uh, thing, right? I think the radical invitation of um, relics that are made from the body is that reminder of our own mortality. And, and I think one of the most um, radical aspects of, of that tradition, that memento mori tradition, uh, of reminding people that they will die, that they are uh, that they are mortal, that they cannot live forever, that you know what we do will one day be basically you know shadows and ash. I think that uh, I think that that's a reminder that you know collectively as a society we kind of need, uh, and then certainly individually I think it's something that we benefit from uh, as well. You know I think in contemporary Anglo-American culture certainly. Uh, death is oftentimes uh, very sanitized, right? And it's an irony because we live in a, uh, well, in the United States, at least, we live in a, in a particularly violent culture in lots of ways. Uh, but that that kind of violence is either aesthetic, made aesthetic in kind of Hollywood movies or it's completely hidden away so that we don't have any real sense of our own mortality in that way. And I think that the the physicality of the relic, the reminder of death, uh, is a lesson that I think everyone would do well to heed, would do well to think about and kind of incorporate into our own understanding of things. Because otherwise there's this kind of, um, you know, fantasy that you can, you know, live forever or whatever in the in the metaverse or download it onto a cloud or whatever. We have this kind of uh, uh, strange myth of immortality uh, that doesn't really uh, grapple with the fallibility of our own bodies in the way that I think relics are really a, a potent um, kind of reminder of. Hmm. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. 
Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. No, I think that makes a lot of sense um, and speaks very directly to our kind of current moment in a way that maybe people don't expect uh, medieval bones to. For sure. I'd like to, I think because of how powerful they are in some of our imaginary of relics, and also because you you just mentioned it in a way that makes me really want to kind of pull that thread, um, the post-Reformation world mm-hmm. and the place of um, relics in it, because we do still have a lot of these religious relics, and there is a place for them still in some religious traditions, uh, despite the fact that there's a whole bunch of other things from the medieval time that we've not carried with us. There's a whole bunch of things um, from the pre-Reformation that we've not brought forward. So why do you think that religious relics, perhaps especially Catholic saints, are still around, are still things we have kept even after the Reformation? It's interesting. You know, I think that... um if we think of the Reformation, even beyond its kind of uh, religious origins as this uh, almost kind of process of secularization in some ways, right? There was a a real, uh, you know, I don't want to fall into that kind of old disenchantment myth, but I always feel like that's a helpful way of thinking about, um, you know, what happened five centuries ago. Uh, And and I think that religion uh, in the West, um, both uh, Protestantism and Catholicism in some ways kind of became a little bit more uh, bourgeois with its approach towards things like relics. So much so that I think uh, for the most part, uh, an American Catholic, for example, would find uh, Catholicism in the global South to be very different from their own kind of like suburban Catholicism in in the United States. But in some ways the the Catholicism is practiced in the, in the global South is maybe more in continuity with pre-Tridentine Catholicism. It's, it has that kind of uh, medieval aspect uh, a little bit more. But I don't think these sentiments or these impulses, right, like the desire uh, to in some way have a tangible physical connection to something that is greater than ourselves in the form of a relic, whether we call it a relic or not, I don't think any of that ever goes away. I think it just is sublimated into different channels. So I think there's something um, in our kind of yearning towards the transcendent as manifested in relics. I think that that always endures, um, even if we don't think of it as as relics uh, in the conventional sense. Um, so, you know, I think that that kind of, you know, desire to go see something at a, at a hall of fame or in a museum or whatever, I, I think that that's just a secularized version of something that's as close to uh, an intrinsic or universal quality of religious faith that, that I can think of. And it's all the more interesting, honestly, when it becomes kind of um, sublimated and transformed into something that's secular. Hmm. All right. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. And certainly the book has a lot of interesting examples mm-hmm. uh, that go well beyond uh, medieval saints. So I'd like to ask you about one of them. And sure. I admit I have cherry picked a bit. There's a bunch of them in the book I could have asked about. We're, we're doing a highlights tour, people. Sure, um, sure. If you want to read about the other ones, please please do pick up the whole book. But can we talk, please, about the embalming of Vladimir Lenin? Given the whole Bolshevik anti-religious thing, sure. 
that seems a little bit odd. So can you talk us through sort of this process in that context versus what you've kind of talked about already, the universal attraction of relics, and maybe as an additional comment, the role of Stalin in this process? Sure. So um, this is how I open up the chapter on relics of politics, because I think, uh, you know, for good and for bad, uh, relic logic is incredibly influential in the political realm, which is oftentimes uh, a very much a symbolic realm, right? I mean, who who controls symbols the most adroitly uh, can gain a great degree of political power in a lot of ways. So the kind of cult of Lenin's body is so fascinating because, you know, Marxist Leninist thought in the Soviet Union is officially uh, materialist, which is to say, supposedly strictly atheistic, uh, that it eschews all belief in the in the supernatural, that it's dismissing that way of being as kind of a primitive, uh, oppressive uh, aspect of a past that is to be left behind in the kind of forging of a greater and more scientific future. And yet upon the death of Lenin, um, he is preserved and put on display in the same way that what the saints in the Catholic church are, are called uh, incorruptible saints, right? So incorruptible saints are saints whose bodies supposedly don't decompose um, because of, of some sort of intrinsic holiness or whatever. Uh, and oftentimes, you know, there are perfectly valid scientific reasons for this happens up to and including being helped along a little bit by mortuary science, which is certainly the case in, in Lenin's, uh, who was embalmed by scientists and doctors and, and kind of waxily put on display uh, in, in Red Square near the Kremlin. Uh, but, you know, people would line up uh, for uh, long queues where they would go and they would they would kind of genuflect and supplicate themselves before uh, the body of the father of the Russian Revolution. And this is so clearly and obviously religious in its kind of ritual forms that any kind of um, because it's an irrational thing to do. Right. And I'm not using the word irrational ever in a, a pejorative sense here. I think that there's all sorts of tremendously powerful things that are irrational that are intrinsic to our building of meaning. Uh, and obviously even with the uh, kind of uh, devaluation of the Orthodox church in Russia or the, the expulsion uh, or erasure of things that were supposed to be religious, it's a, I think a tremendous example of how the religious always finds a way of kind of sneaking back in, right? That you can't get rid of these things that are irrational but fundamental to the human understanding of self. And oftentimes, the more radically you try to get rid of them, I think, the more obviously they come back in, right? So um, standing in line to kind of uh, see Lenin's body as if it were a relic, I think is uh, it's something that, you know, if a person who argues that this isn't religious, I think they've got the bigger argument to make, right? I think it's harder to claim that it's not when it's so clearly in its forms and not in a superficial way at all has that appearance uh, of the religious. Mm -hmm. Stalin's role is interesting in this because Stalin himself was the one that pushed uh, for the embalming. And of course, Stalin never being Lenin's favorite um, had a lot to do to kind of build up his own kind of symbolic power within, within this system after the passing, uh, after the death of Lenin. Uh, Stalin as a person is somebody, you know, as, as reprehensible as he was as a human being, was also very much aware, I think, of the human need for the numinous and of the transcendent. I mean, we, we should remember that he was a seminarian. 
uh, at an Orthodox monastery. He, though an atheist himself, was very much aware of the power which relics and icons and things have. And he kind of, I think, was involved in draining them of their Christian significance and endowing them with uh, with this Marxist-Leninist significance. But it was kind of what, it was, I guess, new wine in old uh, wineskins <laughs> to an extent, right? If I can kind of play with that, that mm-hmm. phrase. Um, so I think that what's so interesting about Lenin's body is it's a, uh, it's a real sterling example of the way in which relics endure, um, even in, maybe especially in places that claim to have been fully drained of that uh, sacred significance. Well, speaking of another example um, where relics endure, but there's at least an attempt to um, ascribe different meanings to them, how did the Nazis view and try to acquire relics? Yeah, I think this is interesting, and maybe it's something that makes a little bit more sense when we think of um, fascism as a as a political system that is uh, kind of defines itself by irrationality in some ways. Uh, but I think totalitarianism and and its opposite in the form of democracy, all of them kind of play with the idea uh, of relics as a means of substantiating and building power. The Nazis did this in a, in a very literal way. Uh, and, um, you know, if, if you've ever seen the movie The Rape of Europa, for example, which talks about the Nazi pilfering uh, of art treasures, you know, that's one example of how kind of acquiring a material abundance of symbolically important works was in central to their uh, kind of designs. But then they also very much were interested in things that were literally recognizable uh, as relics. So the crown of Charlemagne, for example, um, was something that they were interested in exhibiting as kind of part of their supposed connection to this First Reich that existed a thousand years ago and this kind of continuity of, of German sovereignty and supremacy or whatever. Uh, another example of relics that they were interested in acquiring was the so-called Spear of Longinus. This is the spear that the Roman centurion uh, used to pierce Christ's body upon the cross after the crucifixion, which then expelled from the wound both um, blood and water. Uh, and there have been any number of um, you know uh, claimants who say that they have the original Spear of Longinus, but the Nazis were interested in acquiring them in part because then the Nazi leadership within certain currents had this kind of fascination with the occult, oftentimes took a, sort of a pagan form, but it didn't necessarily have to. Um, if anyone, I'm sure everyone has seen, you know, Indiana Jones, right? Like in the, uh, um, uh, Oh, the Raiders of the Lost Ark, where they're, they're looking for the Ark of the Covenant, or in the third and the best one, The Last Crusade, where they're looking for the Holy Grail. That, you know, Steven Spielberg, in part, built that on actual, very bizarre archaeological expeditions that the Nazis would be involved in, where they would try to acquire some of these objects. And so some of it was uh, the, the more figurative kind of metaphorical power that such objects might have. But there was among some people, like, you know, Rosenberg, for example... Um, a kind of sense in which they had uh, maybe actual powers that could be deployed. Um, so it's a it's an interesting and, and bizarre and disturbing kind of, I think, uh, chapter in the theory of relic logic. Hmm. No, and it, but, a, but a useful one to be aware of. So thank for you sure. for taking us through that. 
In terms of um, sort of sites, secular sites, I suppose, especially in the US, uh, you've talked a bit about kind of halls of fame, and I think there's a mm-hmm. very good case to be made there. But if we think about sort of um, secular things that are scattered across the US that are physical sites people can go to and have objects that serve potentially these relic logic purposes, the other one, besides um, halls of fame for whatever genre of music or whatever it is, the other one that I wonder if you can tell us a bit about is um, presidential libraries, US presidential ephemera. Oh, for Do sure. Do these so- things fit as relics? Absolutely. I mean, I, uh, unequivocally, I, I think. And one of the things, and independent from like, you know, actual kind of, um, you know, like boring records that are kept for historians uh, in a library or in, you know, a bathroom, I guess, at a resort, as the case may be. Um, you have kind of the the knickknacks and the souvenirs and the trinkets of presidential power that are kind of elevated by being in a presidential library to something that has the status of relics. I, I think one of the things to remember with um, the American form of government, which is so strongly executive, so strongly federal, has this kind of sense of the president almost as a elected uh, monarch to a certain extent, uh, in a way that I think is very different from a, a parliamentary system, uh, is that relics are very useful in that kind of, um, in kind of bolstering that to an extent. And Robert Bella, who is an uh, American sociologist, uh, kind of, he coined this phrase, American civil religion. And it sort of argues that American, I mean, the American creed or uh, the idea of American government is kind of divinized to an extent that is not necessarily uh, in other Western democracies. And then in part, this was a way of kind of uh, forging more unity in a country that was uh, racially and ethnically and religiously diverse. Uh, but central to that was kind of treating things um, as sacred sites or as relics in, in a kind of uh, profound way that can be, you know, useful and inspiring sometimes, but then can also be incredibly problematic as well. Uh, and the presidents have always played a, a kind of role in that. Um, especially, I think, the kind of founding generation uh, of presidents. So there really is, in in the United States historically, kind of a cult of the founding fathers. Um, It was, interestingly enough, not all that strong in the generation after they were actually alive, probably because there were people who still remembered some of them and I think were more aware of their obvious human frailties and, and foibles. Uh, but uh, certainly during the 20th century, there's been this kind of like um, worshipful, uh, very strange genuflection towards figures like Washington and Jefferson and Franklin in a manner that I don't think you see in a lot of um, European democracies. So I don't think that like in Germany, anyone really cares about what Bismarck did or didn't think about a particular issue beyond the historical interest of it, right? But in the United States, there's this desire to kind of always align yourselves with the founders. You know, you see it in constitutional originalism, or you see it in a kind of, you know, who more truly embodies the principles of the Declaration of Independence, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, And historically, I think both conservatives and liberals, the left and the right kind of um, would try to lay claim to being more central to the to the founders' vision, though the kind of reckoning we've had with our own history over the past four years has maybe uh, put the founders in a more accurate and honest light than uh, that kind of hero worship had in the past. 
But, you know, one of the things, uh, if you've traveled through the U.S., uh, that you will oftentimes see at historical sites is there's always this kind of, um, you know, thing you'll see where it says, like, Washington slept here or whatever. Uh, and it's, I think, an example of how that relic logic really endures in what's supposedly a, a secular liberal democracy in that, you know, there's this kind of desire to be where Washington was, as if that matters in any kind of like literal sense, right, where it, it obviously doesn't. Um, but because we've endowed Washington and others like him uh, as figures with so much power, uh, or so much symbolic power, it then becomes kind of a spiritual or transcendent power as well. Uh, and you'll see it with, you know, Lincoln, obviously, is an example of somebody, I think, who has this kind of um, cult that accrues around him as well. And then afterwards, it gets kind of a little bit more partisan, depending on, on where your political leanings lie, in terms of who you uh, you devote those kinds of emotions towards. Hmm. Very interesting to see the similarities to the other examples we've discussed and also think about kind of when things become relics. I think the point about generations um, For sure. is well taken and perhaps will help us kind of think ahead to what what we have now that might become relics later. Um, but I suppose I'm getting ahead of myself because what I actually wanted to ask you about next is to pick up on something briefly mentioned right at the beginning that I think... Uh, I assumed you would talk about when I saw the book was about Relic, and I was very pleased to see it included, because quite often with Relic, there's some ideas about kind of, well, what does this have to do with art? Is our art, our, is visual art relics? Where do we draw the line? How do we think about these things? And I think, for me at least, the easiest way into asking you a bit about art is to focus on the Mona Lisa. Yeah. Um, and ask you to tell us a little bit about kind of why do people still go there and what does this tell us about our conceptions of artists and art? You know, it's, it's funny. I always, um, you know, I think a couple of weeks ago, there were some climate change activists who threw soup on the Mona Lisa, which was totally fine because it's under, you know, however many inches of glass and, and kind of, uh, you know, barbed wire or whatever. Um, but for anyone who's ever seen the Mona Lisa, one of the things that's uh, I think surprising is it's perhaps one of the most <laughs> disappointing art viewing experiences uh, when compared to the kind of, um, you know, symbolic power that surrounds uh, the the painting itself, right? I mean, it's a, it's kind of a, a small and a hard to see when you're in the Louvre, when there's, you know, dozens and dozens of people that are in front of it. But it's an interesting question. I think it's an interesting example as well, right? Because like, let's pretend that the uh, Mona Lisa did get destroyed when soup was thrown on it, right? Or, uh, you know, God forbid the Louvre should burn down or something and the, and the Mona Lisa uh, is, is destroyed. We know what the Mona Lisa looks like, right? I mean, we can make uh, immaculate versions of it through like Jiggly printing technology and things. You could have, you could buy probably for a couple hundred dollars something that would look very much like the original uh, and hang it up in your house, right? Uh, so the experience of looking at the original Mona Lisa is different only in so much as there's something that's important about it being the original. Uh, but whether something's an original or not, in a literal sense, shouldn't actually matter, but it obviously does, right? And I think that that is a, a sterling example of, of relic logic as it applies to art. One of the things with medieval relics that's so important is because there was a, a tremendous trade in them. Um, pilgrimage networks where people would go and take a look at relics were kind of the original 
tourist networks to a certain extent. Uh, and really, it was an example of um, a market that emerged because this had a lot to do with burgeoning capitalism uh, as well. Uh, it's the first example, I think, of a market where something would have a value beyond um, kind of its immediate usefulness in a way, right? So if you're trying to negotiate the price of you know wheat or whatever, um, that's something that has a, a very tangible, obvious, physical, pragmatic usefulness to it that a saint's bone doesn't. Uh, in the same way that deciding that the Mona Lisa is a priceless artifact, uh, uh, art artifact is something that goes beyond its like literal material composition, right? So if we had to literally value how much the Mona Lisa would cost, quote unquote, we've got, you know, 500 year old canvas and some oil and whatever. It's obviously not going to be a lot, uh, but the object is so important outside, uh, outsized its actual you know, literal composition um, that I think that that kind of illustrates or animates what we think of uh, as relic logic. Part of my thinking as well is based out of um, a writer named James Simpson. He's an English professor at Harvard, Australian born English professor. He wrote a fantastic book called Under the Hammer. Uh, and it's a history of Protestant iconoclasm, uh, which was the destruction of icons and statues and relics and, and different objects. But he argues that the idea of secular art really emerges out of that moment. And in part, it's because, and he doesn't use the word relic logic, but I, I can use it here. Uh, it's because that idea of relic logic was kind of transferred from religion into the secular realm in the form of art. So instead of um, relics being kind of these uh, uh, intangible uh, symbolic objects, uh, paintings and sculptures and things became kind of the new relics for a, a secular era. Does that extend to contemporary art if we move away from the sort of things in the famous fancy French museums? Sure, I think it absolutely does. I think it's maybe made more difficult or problematic by things like digital art, um, which kind of maybe, or conceptual art, which remove uh, art from the realm of the physical. But I think even the most, maybe even more so, um, avant-garde art, found object art, Dadaist art, a lot of that really made literal, I think, the uh, the kind of ways in which a prosaic object could be elevated um, through relic logic. So if you look at the Mona Lisa, obviously uh, a part of what is so interesting uh, or moving to us about it is that it was a thing that was uh, a difficult to make, right? I mean, it's brilliantly rendered it's um, it's this kind of elevated thing that not, you know, not most most of us could not make it. In fact, only one of us could make that that particular thing. But, you know, uh, Marcel Duchamp's uh, fountain, which is a, the urinal that he signed uh, um, that was, in, I think, 1913, um, was this found object kind of avant garde uh, sculpture. Uh, and he did nothing other than sign it. Right. But the act of signing it is what elevated it into an art object, which was incredibly controversial at the time. And people kind of questioned if this was like a crude joke or, or whatever. But I think if anything, it's a it's a very arresting illustration of how relic logic works. Um, you know, that urinal became important because Marcel Duchamp, who we think of as important, said it was important. And then everyone agreed with him. Uh, and so it kind of willed that importance into existence. But that's how it's always been. 
with relic logic. You know, this tooth is important because we say it's from St. Anthony. This skull is important because we say it's from St. Jerome. Uh, and it kind of elevates it beyond even questions of provenance or authenticity. Uh, so it's a kind of apotheosis of the material in a lot of ways. Hmm. I think that that, I mean, the chain of logic makes sense, but definitely something interesting next time one encounters contemporary art to um, kind of put it much more directly next to conceptions, you know, going back to the one on the cover, right, of medieval saints' bones. For sure. Yeah. So thank you for comparing them and kind of helping us see the continuity where we otherwise might not. If I can ask as a penultimate question, um, you've obviously been kind of explaining a lot of this to us, and obviously there's even more in the book, but if we could go maybe behind the scenes uh, into your sort of research and writing process, is there anything you came across that was particularly surprising to you? I think that, I, you know, to go back to Lenin, I think that what was most surprising to me was how common the embalming and display uh, of leaders was in communist countries. So Lenin's the most obvious example, um, but the same thing was done to Mao, uh, was done to Che Guevara in, in Cuba, was done to um, uh, the, the first Kim in North Korea. Uh, and I think uh, it's such a strange, incongruous thing when you think about these supposedly uh, staunchly materialist and atheistic regimes that are doing such a, such a characteristically medieval um, thing in terms of relic veneration. So that really kind of underscored my um, belief that a, a lot of what, maybe all of what we think of as secular in some way uh, is basically um, sublimated religion to a certain extent. That even if we're atheistic, we can't help but kind of manifest theological categories in different sorts of ways. Uh, and, and it really underscored to me um, a line from a British philosopher named John Gray, uh, who theorizes a lot of stuff about the relationship between religion and secularism. And he has this great book called Black Mass that's about uh, utopian beliefs in comparison to apocalyptic beliefs. Uh, and he said, as a playoff of the von Clausewitz line, he says that politics is religion by other means. And I think that, um, you know, Lenin's body is a, is a great exhibition of how religion is politics by other means. Something that we, uh, or sorry, the politics is religion by other means. And it's something that we obviously very much see right now uh, in an American context, where partisan politics has kind of taken on the feeling of sectarianism to an extent, uh, in a manner that's more recognizable in the religious context, but endures nonetheless in a, in a contemporary liberal democracy. Hmm. Yeah, no, I think there's a lot of ways um, that this book speaks to things that, you know, we, we can understand and experience now and very much probably going forward. So thank you for um, sharing that sort of reaction with us. And speaking of the future, that in fact takes me to my final question. Um, this book is obviously out in the world for people to pick up and read on the subway. Is there anything you might be working on now that it's done, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's about relics that you'd like to share? Sure. So I always kind of have a lot of uh, irons in the fire, as it were, but probably the most um, interesting to your listeners is a book that's already completed and the galleys have been approved, but it's it's coming out uh, July 9th of this year from uh, Melville House Press, and it's called uh, Devil's Contract, The History of the Faustian Bargain. And this is the first comprehensive full-length popular history of the Faust legend, so of the 
the kind of mythic trope of a person selling their soul to the devil to acquire knowledge or power in some way. So the book does, I think, something very similar to what I do in Relic, where it's to kind of take a, a big tent picture of like um, classifying things that might not normally be thought of in this particular way as really actually being, uh, as really actually taking part in this kind of older religious myth. So this is a book that deals with things that are earlier than the Faust legend proper, focuses a lot on um, the medieval and Renaissance German legend of, of the wizard Faust, uh, while looking at, you know, things like Christopher Marlowe's play or, or Goethe's poem. Uh, and then it goes into uh, more contemporary kind of pop cultural treatments, um, things like the uh, American bluesman Robert Johnson, who supposedly sold his soul to the devil, or the ways in which we talk about figures like the physicist J. Robert Oppenheimer. Uh, and the whole book makes an argument, really, that we live in a, a particularly Faustian age, where the idea that we're willing to kind of trade away that which is most important to us for um, for something else kind of defines what it means to be human at this particular juncture. So it's a it's a gorgeous book. The cover's uh, wonderful. Um, it got great editorial oversight from Mike Lindgren at, uh, at Melville House, and it's really a title that I'm incredibly excited about. Well, I think there's probably a lot of listeners who are excited to know that that's coming. So thank you for sharing that preview with us. Sure. Um, but of course, while listeners wait for that book, they can read the one we've been talking about, again, titled Relic, published by Bloomsbury. Ed, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. And thank you so much for the invitation. I really appreciate it and had a great time.